0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Critical Thinking, Episode 4, Attack on the Durgar War Camp. I'm John, John A. Bates, or at John A. Bates on Twitter, and with me today is Jack.
1: Hey,
2: everybody. I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter.
1: And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm JThomas411Mania. And we are... (laughs) Yes, you are at
0: that. Uh, And we are Final Show Films, and we are the people that have decided to take it upon ourselves to rewatch every single episode of Critical Role, a web-based series in which Matthew Mercer takes his group of nerdy voice actors through a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Uh, we have Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master, Orion Akaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, and Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Vax Hildan, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, and Travis Willingham as Grog. And episode four, again, as I said earlier, is titled Attack on the Dorgar War Camp. So... Uh, previously, uh, on Critical Role, the group went to Craghammer uh, because of their friend, Arcanist, uh, Arcanist Alora Vysorin, in order to find Lady Kima Vord, a halfling paladin of Bahamut, who was lost in the Underdark underneath Craghammer. They went to Craghammer, found out trouble was a brewing, things were, abominations were coming up out of the mines, and they struck a deal with the owner of the mines, Nostock Grayspine, to go down, to delve down, find the source, kill it, oh, and also, if they're down there, find Lady Kima um they went down to the they went down through the mines had a few battles with a couple of umber hulks then got into a fight with a with an intellect devourer and a Duragar, the intellect devourer sucking the intellect what little there was out of grog uh, rendering him uh comatose for a bit they healed they healed grog then they continued on where they found a Duragar war camp that they attempted to draw the troops out of and combat which they did successfully do um (laughs) but And they managed to take out a good number of their forces, but the remaining forces retreated back and they were unsuccessful at destroying the rest of them. Though they were successful at destroying the bridge between them. Um, actually, no, did they cut the bridge?
2: Uh, the Durgar yes. cut the bridge. <laughs> the, the
0: Durgar cut the yeah. bridge. That's right. In order <laughs> to keep them from continuing on. Right. Uh, then after that, the party had a vote as to whether or not they were going to go investigate the chasm for some strange reason. Uh, Half the entirety of the party, except for two people, voted not to, and so the two people that voted to uh, went ahead and did it anyways, where they found uh, Clarota, a fit outcast um, who they brought back to the party to help them continue on their journey, offering revenge for his assistance, because all the best deals in the world were based on revenge.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, look at Othello.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's a really great example here.
2: I mean, look at Hamlet. I mean... <laughs> Turned out well for them. So,
0: uh, Vox Machina and Clorota head back to the abandoned goblin village to rest. As they approach, Vax sees a light up ahead. He and Scanlan go to investigate. Uh, where the Durgar were camped, they find Pike, examining the symbol card Relity Kima on the wall. Scanlan is ecstatic to see her. Upon returning to the rest of the group, Clarota tells them what he knows of Cavarne, and I quote A great battle took place and it appeared something had sieged the stronghold. Reading the surface thoughts of the dwarves I encountered in the following weeks I found a shift in power. Whatever had taken this hole uh, this, this whole had now demanded fealty of them. The the, the, the dialogue is a bit poorly written. It's long. um yeah, and they accepted. And they accepted when faced with annihilation. This entity that took the Duragar by force, they called Kavarn. I caught no sight of it, but the fear I could sense from within the dwarves was so primal, so great, that I knew to keep a, a distance to be safe. Not but four months ago, one of my estranged people was captured by these Ashkins and brought within the Obsidian Walls for what I assumed was, interrogate, was interrogation. Long after, the bulk of Durarapil marched back through the long, deep tunnels that led to my people's colony and attacked. Strangely, before much blood- bloodshed could occur, what I only assumed was the next step in this onslaught, the fighting stopped, and the colony allowed the Ashkins to waltz directly into the temple, unharmed, unchallenged, where our Elder Brain resides." It wasn't until after I discovered whom this Kavarn is. They themselves infiltrated the temple and somehow took the... Sorry, discovered that whomever this Kavarn is, sorry, is, is they themselves infiltrated the temple and somehow took the Elder Brain under their own control. I watched my people work, had their will robbed of them, and they took the will of the others that live and breathe in these tunnels. Now a terrible army is forged of both factions, and they walk under the banner of this Kavarn.
1: So we've got cool. a couple things going on. Sorry, good. Um, we've got a couple things that 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 going on here initially. Um, that that are that are big moments. First, we have the introduction of Pike. Um, we have had up to this point for the first three episodes, we've had time to get to know these the, the rest of the group, and this is the first chance we get to meet the the, the gnome cleric that they've talked about a fair amount up to this point. Uh-huh. Um, and she makes a pretty pretty solid first impression because she's able to uh tell them a little bit more about the uh, the Bahamut symbol. Um and she does some stuff that comes becomes relevant a little bit later. But it was a really good for, really good first appearance and a good way for for Matt to work her in early on.
2: And I think uh, by by incorporating her knowledge of the Bahamut symbol, which has been referenced in a previous episode without too much detail or success, it it gives the audience a good look into, oh, this is the character who actually, you know, religion is in their wheelhouse. Yep. And and it establishes that right off the bat very quickly.
0: This yeah, is I'm the totally person right. who religion checks. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, if you're analyzing it from a game perspective, but we're here about story, damn it. I
0: mean, yeah, and also... Also also that.
1: Um, The other thing that we've got, obviously, is Clarota's story. Uh, The explanation and the necessary exposition dump uh, delivered fairly well um, to explain Kavarn without revealing too much about Kavarn itself. It explains uh, Clarota sort of explains what happened to him, and clearly explains the threat level of Kavarn mm-hmm. Because anybody who's familiar with with mind flares and those who aren't got a pretty good clue of it in the previous episode knows that they're not something that you mess with. Very. This much. one. This one took over an entire, this thing took over an entire colony of Mind Flayers. Um, And what it also does, this particular uh, exposition dump, paints Clarota, it puts Clarota in a really good position to be a temporary ally for them. Because it paints them in a very sympathetic light. All of a sudden, um, he's somebody whose people got, uh enslaved we know he's an outsider to his own people but somebody who still feels a longing for them and that really resonates with a lot of the characters because a lot of these characters uh in vox machina these are all outsiders to their own societies grog's kicked out of you know his herd uh you have the half elves who are half elves and right.
2: that's Perse- Percy and Whitestone right with the Percy and White so
1: basically everybody with the exception of the gnomes
2: and keeleth ish but Keyleth's Keyleth Keyleth's has all... Keyleth... a little bit too right but Keyleth has always portrayed herself and been carried as somebody who feels like an outsider even if circumstances wouldn't necessarily dictate that so yeah, she's more she's, of an outsider she's by make... choice or, or delusion, one of the Or two. delusion. <laughs> but yeah.
0: Um, another narrative tactic that this brings in, and, and normally this wouldn't be the case in like a book or a thing, but because it's a, a D&D game, is this brings in an instance of an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. Um, because Mm -hmm. the DM is the narrator for all intents and purposes, any NPCs that the DM plays are also by extension the narrator. And so the unreliable narrator is typically a thing that you bring into books when you want the audience to not know everything that's going on. So the narrator, if there is a first person perspective, it's a person who doesn't have all the information. And so the audience comes in without that sort of typical, uh, Third person knowledge that they have. It's also a narrator that will lie to the audience in order to make things, in order to surprise them later. Um, and in this case, it's the narrator that doesn't know everything, so it sets up this unknowable evil, and we don't know much else about it. We also it, we also are not sure how truthful Clarota is being.
2: Right, because there's a number of ways you can incorporate an unreliable narrator. You can have them, you know, straight up trying to deceive whoever they're talking to. Uh, You can have them be like you said ignorant if they don't possess the entire story and they're just doing the best with what they have they could just be biased honestly you know and and you know while attempting to sincerely communicate their perspective on the situation it's a subjective sometimes perspective you know so Mm -hmm. and and you know as the dm you know as as somebody who's crafting this entire story you know yeah these npcs that you're personifying you can have any level or all of those levels incorporated if you want to if you want to utilize the the unreliable narrator
0: and it's it's actually a very good example of what we were talking about we referenced earlier hamlet mm-hmm. and in the story of hamlet or sorry yeah macbeth um and i mean both in the story of macbeth and hamlet <laughs> hamlet and macbeth are both unreliable narrators yes. right um and you know we see that more now throughout and we sort of see what happens to them. So we, we get a little bit of sense. Unreliable narrators rarely meet very good ends. (laughs) Um, so at least classically, um, so we'll see if this is a little bit of foreshadowing for Clarota. Um, anyways, Clarota expresses a deep desire to free his people in the hope that they will allow him to rejoin the colony, his family. Vox Machina wants to know if they can jury-rig a helmet like Clorodas. Clorodas is wearing sort of a a helmet that keeps him from interacting with the elder brain.
2: It's an an underdark version of a tinfoil hat. basically, Pretty much. (laughs) Um,
0: In the hopes that it will allow him to read one. Sorry. Vox Machina wants to know if they can jury-rig a helmet like Clorodas for themselves, but Clorodas says they don't need it. Grog brings out a large bronze pot from the bag of holding and wears it on his head. Percy negotiates free passage for their help to which Clorota agrees. Um, so Percy basically saying, you know, if we help you, you guys won't eat our brains afterwards. And Clorota, I'll remind you, our unreliable narrator agrees. Yes. Um, so they begin to plan. Clorota suggests they attack the Durgar war camp and capture their general so that Clorota can pry him for information on the stronghold below. But Clarota warns that since they have seen facts, they will be prepared. While they're strategizing on how to attack the war camp, Pike mentions that she has experienced a vision where she was pulled down toward the mines into the tunnels where the dwarves were working, past past the goblinoid creatures and past the great underground lake, past a jagged onyx-colored fortress framed in molten rock, past a field of broken glass and bone. The group briefly considers exploring the lake to see if that yields a way around the door of our camp, but Florida warns that an ancient creature in the lake is best not tampered with. Again, but Pike's more... vision.
2: Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. But no, and Pike's vision is fantastic in, and you'll see this a lot, especially in kind of like a pulp fantasies and fiction stuff Mm -hmm. that's set sort of in that age of adventure, you know, uh, the, the, the Kipling, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Robert Howard sort of era, you know, where, you know, the, the, the explorer finds the map with these, you know, iconic landmarks along it, you know, and and Matt uses that sort of theme or trope, I would say fairly effectively here, giving them, you know, at least a series of features, because as anybody who's experienced the the classic Underdark uh kind of environment can can testify you know it's a maze down there and it's supposed to be you know it's this network of strange environments it's easy to get lost you know things dead end cave in all sorts of hazards can happen so giving the group just like a a quick thumbnail list of hey here's four landmarks to put you on your way will definitely serve them well. And it's, it's good foresight on his part to to sort of bring the audience along and give them some some thumbnails to progress through so that they don't lose track of this maze of an environment that they're going to be working their way through. Yep. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, prophecy, prophecy is one of my favorite things in when done well in, in mm-hmm. narrative storytelling, but it's a risky proposition uh particularly when you're looking at for lack of a better term modern audiences um compare it to modern audiences i think are are so used to thanks to shows like lost and uh other serial shows like that that are they're seeded with clues throughout they're very very savvy towards looking towards Hints of stuff and and predicting what happens. You found that with Westworld uh, mm-hmm. in its first season, where people uh, had literally predicted one of the one of the big twists by the second episode.
2: Yeah, big reveals already. Yeah,
1: um, and so but, and don't get me wrong, I love Westworld. is one of my favorite shows of last season, but that did sort of create a situation wherein towards the end of the season, you kind of felt like, you know, there was so much at that point that it confirmed everything. You're like, all right, come on, just reveal it. Mm -hmm. So it's a real risk in that if you're too obvious with it, then then your viewers or your readers are going to figure it out very quick. If you're too obscure with it, then it doesn't really have, why even introduce it? I think and yep. here, it was done really well because the, 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 the landmarks, like you said, are, are ones that aren't, they're not so obvious that you're going to say, you know, uh, a sea of glass. Well, clearly I know what that's going to be. Um, but, but once those moments happen later on in future episodes, it's a, it's, it's, you're able to look back at that and and viewers go ooh 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 i know what uh, i think i might know what's going to happen here
2: right well and i think he does it fairly effectively in that as far as i'm aware he f- he foreshadows locations he doesn't yes, foreshadow exactly. events you know, yes. because part of that is the nature of his storytelling medium. You can't necessarily predict how any no. game is going to no, <laughs> pan you out. And that's that's just that's just a horrible thing to to try and do. Um but also, you know, it's 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 an excellent way to to sort of give your your players, give your protagonists a push down the path you want them to take without them necessarily feeling like it's railroaded. Yep. Because instead of you saying, no, go here, you say, hey, here are the places that will get you where you want to go. And as humans, we're all about the path of least resistance, or at least whatever we perceive to be the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm.
0: And, well, it's also useful um, when you uh, – you know in cases that I use visions for, um, when you're giving people esoteric information. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, but allows you to draw your own conclusions from it. Uh, I, 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 I use this. I have been using it with greater and greater frequency in our Thursday game as Mm -hmm. uh, Jack knows, Mm -hmm. Um, giving you information that doesn't mean anything by itself, but with information you have previously may lead you to certain clues, may lead you to different clues. um, And, you know, that, provides sort of a third level of the experience where it's sort of a mental game. This is more just here are some places you might run into, but future uses of such visions uh, can result in different, more interesting experiences. Um,
2: And uh, if you guys don't mind a little sidebar, I think uh, Jeremy's point about, um, you know, the audience's ability in the modern era to figure out from foreshadowing greater detail jump to greater conclusions that's worth a mention and i think a lot of it is based on the fact that the the community of the audience Mm -hmm. has changed drastically over the last century you know whereas before you know a a well-known work of fiction whether it was a play or a novel it was still consumed and might have been a societal phenomena, but if you wanted to talk about it or try and consider what might happen with, you know, ensuing volumes or or sequels, you literally had to either meet in person with other people who had read it and discuss, you know, in your own small society what was going on or pass written letters back and forth over a period of months, you know, and and now we've got this huge just – maniacal think tank of mass consumption all over the internet. And so there's a lot more brain to go around and a lot more uh, in a sense, gestalt processing power in the, the audience zeitgeist uh, of any phenomenal show like Westworld, for instance, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's not, I don't think it's necessarily that audiences are inherently more savvy. They are somewhat, but I think also it's just there's more people talking and thinking about it and communicating faster well, and with with fewer obstacles. Yeah, yeah So they can they can get to these conclusions a lot quicker than people might have been able to. 20, well, twenty, thirty, even fifty you years ago. You only need
0: you only need one, right? You only need one. Like <clears throat> for instance, if we're talking about TV shows, you only need me, the screenwriter, because mm. I have. What I watch episodes of TV shows that I've never seen and just start calling out predictions as I'm watching them, and 95% of them are correct because I know the writing process exactly. And I know the like, I know where the setups are, I know where the hooks are, I know where the curves are. That doesn't, and and I do this out of habit because Mm -hmm. it doesn't stop me from enjoying the show because the journey is more important than the the end for me. Um, Oh,
1: yeah, 100%
0: but you need see one person in a room of five people doing that. And then all of a sudden that five people go out and tweet to a hundred people, yep. people who then tweet out to another hundred people who then tweet out to another hundred people. And right. so you've got, you know, this sort of chain reaction. that goes from one guy going, Oh, this is what's happening to do 10 to 500 to 5,000 to 5 million. Mm-hmm.
1: Very it's a matter of, uh, I I I always say this and it's metaphorical, but the water cooler changed the way that narrative storytelling works now.
2: Very yeah. much so. And um, the internet is the biggest water cooler that there exactly. is. Exactly. You know, whereas fifty years ago, somebody like you, John, would have maybe spoiled the show, for lack of a better term, to the office they work in and maybe a couple, you know, ancillary individuals who happen to be be affiliated now. Like, somebody puts up a commentary column on whichever media website, and fi- like you said, 500,000 people have access to it within 24 hours, you know? Yep.
0: Yeah, and it really makes people like me seem like a dick,
2: but we're not trying to be a <laughs> no, dick. No, you're not it's trying just, to be. Well, you're just appreciating how... the art form, right? And <laughs> it's <so> funny, <laughs> I, you
1: know, not to, not to keep going back to Westworld, but the, the one thing that, the, that I was talking about, the, the thing that was predicted, like, by the second episode... I was reviewing that show, and I mentioned it as a random possibility in in my review of that episode, not even thinking that it was actually going to be true i mean i it, i I thought of it as a possibility. I was like, no, they're not going to go that route for for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I turned out to be right, right. i wasn't <laughs> but what's scary is when I wrote the review, I was not the first person to have already suggested that no, and this right. was the second week yeah.
0: Mhm. <clears throat> like, you know, it just sometimes you have sometimes the clues that were meant to be there all along are actually there uh-huh. all along,
1: and it's really changed um how people have how people inherently write this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, a little bit less for a show, obviously, like Critical Role, though. I I am pretty sure Matt probably takes that kind of stuff into account to a degree. I mean, well, it it, it seems very much as. as as far ahead
0: as we are in in reality it seems very much like a story that he's written the over oh, he's written the overview the overarching story <clears throat> and fills in the me, the middle parts like he's yes. got part a b c and d and mm-hmm. then a2 a1 a2 a3 a4 b1 b2 b3 like yeah, any good storyteller
1: <laughs> should
2: right cuz for structuring for structuring a narrative like this you know the 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 basic structure is going to be group of adventurers is confronted with a threat how do they respond and then as the the story designer for something like that your your general idea would be come up with maybe the three most likely scenarios of what happens you know they defeat it they don't defeat it and go off and do something else maybe a third option and then you branch off of that you know but and you know then you have other threats that you've lined up for further along in the narrative structure, and you do the same thing with those. Yep.
0: All right. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot where I was in the description.
2: They were getting ready to get into the war camp. Ah,
0: Percy suggests, yes. Percy suggests blinding the members in the camp, and Clarota mentions that uh, the deep dwarves hate light. Keyleth wants to enchant the flying carpet with a light spell that blinds Durgar as they fly over. Vax asks if they could fight if he could fight blindfolded without being affected, because they're they're talking about the the illith, the uh, illithid's ability to manipulate uh, minds, uh, typically requiring eyesight, eye contact, um, eye contact, as well as uh, the the dwarves' hitting lights. So there's sort of a twofold conversation going on here. Huh? Um, Cloro Chlor- is not sure if if be if being blindfolded would affect. Mostly, And this is mostly because their only experience with mind-affecting creatures have been the uh, Umberhulks, umber who do yep. require line of sight for you, or who do require eye contact to affect you. Right. Um, Scanlan has a ring of mind shielding, which Claroda assures would help against psionic influence. Uh, Vax suggests that an invisible Scanlan might infiltrate the War Camp again and blind the Illithid, but Claroda reminds him that, he, that this would not affect Duragar already it in its control. The party finally decide on a two-pronged plan. Vax and Scanlon will sneak in to kill the Illithid, uh, while the rest of the party create a, a distraction and try to bind them with light. And by the way, I know I'm saying Illithid, and some people say it's Illithid. It's a fantasy creature. It does not matter.
2: Whatever it's. <laughs> uh, <Yeah.
1: laughs>
2: because That's someone... why I say Mind Flayer, because those are two English words that we need the pronunciation <laughs> of. Illithid.
0: illithid
1: <laughs> It's
0: just a, it's just an emphasis on a different
1: syllable. Um, <laughs> Until the creator tells us, we go with what we want.
0: Isn't Gygax dead?
1: Yes. Until Gygax Gygax the company that okay. owns the name tell us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> After an uncomfortable sleep filled with unsettling dreams due to Clarota's presence, the party wakes to the ground rumbling. Scanlan asks Clarota what it is, and he says that they're creatures, and it's best to stay still. Uh, the party holds still until the rumbling subsides. When the danger passes, Clor explains that some creatures can detect movement via sound. Uh, actually, I think I think that's supposed to be movement in the ground, but this 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 thing says in the sound. I think that meant in the ground. Yeah,
1: probably in the ground or via yeah, either
0: yeah. way. Uh, Vox Machina makes final preparations for the attack on the Durgar War Camp, including finding some goblin refuse to use to blind the elephant. A goblin ship. Um, Clorida offers to cloud the illicit's mind if the rest of the party protects him.
2: Yes, they cleaned out the abandoned latrine. Yes.
0: Keyleth turns into an eagle and picks up the gnomes. Tiberius casts Fly on Grog and hops on his back to steer as Grog still has the pot on his head. Uh, which I don't know why Tiberius doesn't just cast Fly on the group. Because it can target multiple people. It depends
2: on, well, you can depending on what level spell you Love yeah. what level you cast it at it's one, you, it, right
0: it's it's one of those things where fly later on fly gets it's it's one of the things that i actually have issue with a lot of tv shows and narrative <laughs> in games and books where an ability is first showcased um and then later showcased to be able to to have been able to solve a previous problem in a much easier way with yes. no real explanation as to why they didn't just use it that way in the first place Fine. so
2: I, and a- I would say, I would say, this is an example of art imitating life,
0: because
2: <laughs> because all you need to do is play a game, all you need to do is DM a Dungeons and Dragons game to realize that people don't always think about all the things that they can do. No, <laughs>
1: it's it's true. It's true. My problem here, my, my problem with that, isn't necessarily that direction, because you can learn... Lo- you can come up with new ways to use to use spells or powers or that or realize at some point you can narratively explain oh i didn't realize that i could use a spell to cast you know to make multiple people fly or whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. my problem is always the tendency that when you introduce something you make it incredibly powerful so it has an impact and then you have to scale it down in progressive episodes uh, or, or, or later <coughs> on in Star- the storyline. <coughs> the, the,
0: the, opposite, the opposite issue of mine. Yes. Which is, my, which is really the same Stargate's issue. Stargate's a big
1: direction. one. My big example that I always use is from Buffy the Vampire Slayer the Uber mm. Vamps from, yes. from the, the final season. Yes. The first Uber Vamp absolutely destroys Buffy the first time that they fight. Mm -hmm, just absolutely tears it tears her down by the end and yes i realize there's a bunch of magical stuff that come into play and whatever but still but by the end the newbies who literally just awakened as slayers are killing them like they're
2: they're made of tissue paper yes right Mm -hmm. yeah
1: it's the it is the and that plays into the one ninja is is a deadly thing. A thousand ninjas, you can get through no problem. But still,
2: right. Well, that's because there's a finite amount of ninja divided yes, between right. The, well, but, but on either side of the conflict.
1: To take,
0: it to some, <laughs> but to take it to something even you know even more modern than that, uh, dementors in Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. The it's first dementor, the first dementor you see, terrifying. By the end of the series, patronus, 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 patronus. patronus. They're yep. gone. Yeah, like,
2: well, it, and the Patronus charm it, it, as well. You know, I mean, like, how hard does he have to concentrate and stress and strain before he's able to? And then, you know.
0: Afterwards, two books later, everybody's got a corporeal
2: Oof. patronus and nobody gives a shit. And we and use them, the, and, and we use the, them for texting. And
0: <laughs> in the power in,
1: creeping and just
2: for CCGs, folks. In, nope. the,
0: in and in the movies, uh, in expelliarmus starts as something you trained very hard to learn. By the end of it, they're casting it without saying it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and by the way, it can collide with a killing spell. And uh, yeah, it's just like right. you know, it's like. You guys are doing all this stuff for theatrics that ignores the
1: story you've already put up. (laughs) Well, those are examples of... A lot of those are examples of writers writing themselves into a corner. Yeah. Where they can't get out there. They put themselves in a situation where, okay, you set up this particular villain or this particular obstacle that needs to be overcome and you literally have no way... Can't come up with a way... to to get around it. So your option is to amp up what the what the heroes already have. Or okay, at some point you did this cool thing. Yeah. At some point you did this cool thing with this power. How do I undo that? Well you really can't unless you're heroes and you try and it just doesn't work. But you really can't do that. So you just have to figure out some way to work around it and it usually
2: doesn't or to ignore it it. because it because it can be very tempting to front load a villain because you don't you you want you want the villain to be a dramatic presence who is an obvious threat you know so you give them this huge suite of abilities and allies and resources and things and then all of a sudden you're like oh wait i i spent so much energy making them loom so large are they too now too big for my heroes to take down? Because that is yep. ultimately how we well, as humans structure most of our stories: is that the heroes faced with an overwhelming threat somehow manage to triumph. But if you make the threat too overwhelming, a
0: good example of not doing that is uh, Marvel's writing team with uh, with Jessica Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Kilgrave has one thing that he does. Yep. Only one. And it's in the beginning, it's very terrifying because we're seeing it only from Jessica Jones' perspective. But once a certain point happens and she realizes something about herself and his power, it's no longer vulnerable, and it's no longer a threat, and it becomes a thing where he doesn't change her perspective of him changes
1: yes and um, it's not coincidental the fact that he is probably outside of Loki, their best villain yet,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Even yep. though, like, like he's not, he's, it's, it's, it's not his power that changes, and therefore we're able to overcome it. It's us as the audience and her as a hero. Our perspectives change.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: And, and that is a much better way of handling that. Well, how do we, how do we beat the bad guy? We've made him so strong. Turn the angle 90 degrees. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just- Come um, at it from come at it from the non confrontational, you know, sideways <laughs> perspective. I like how
0: we got that tangent off of Tiberius casting fly on yes, on one person. Right. Well, um, you know,
2: yeah. <laughs> anyways. It was either that or talk about how whenever you give a pit and something that flies to an adventuring party, <laughs> it immediately turns into well you can't have the the wolf in the same boat with the chicken because then <laughs> <laughs> so you take the, 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 the chicken over and leave the, 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 the fox so with the it, grain, and it then... <laughs> just, it just
0: immediately becomes Towers of Hanoi.
2: Right, um, pretty much.
0: <laughs> so, Tiberius casts fly on Grog, and hops on his back to steer, as Grog still has the pot on his head. The rest the rest get on the carpet, and they all fly over the crevasse into the war camp. Clarota gives them a final warning that there could be an abomination in the camp, i.e. there will be an abomination in the camp. <laughs> um as they fly over the camp because when your unreliable narrator tells you something, trust it. <laughs> as, they, as they fly over the camp as they fly over the camp undetected, they can see tunneling siege engines being constructed, as well as other preparations for an attack on the city above. They approach the center of the encampment and land on the roof of the barracks. So we're ramping up the sort of the stakes here. You know, it's yep. like it's not just us that's at stake, it's also Craghammer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um there's no roof access, but Vax and Sion on the wall and sneak through a window on the side of the building. They find themselves in a dormitory and continue into the hallway. They avoid the Duragar stationed in the hallways, and Vax throws a gold coin down in the hall, and one of the two guards goes to investigate. Which is, I think, which is like, that's a game mechanic. That's, yes. that's I have played Hitman, or Splinter Cell, or any number right. of stealth games before, right. and I know that if I throw a gold coin,
2: they're <laughs> gonna go, go ding, get it. And somebody's gonna be like, hey, what was that?
0: Must have been a rat. Um,
2: <laughs> Aren't you a little uh, short to be a stormtrooper?
0: So Vax goes down the hall. Uh so yeah, he throws the gold coin, one of the guards investigate, Vax slits his throat. Or slits so the second throat. Uh the sec- the other guard that didn't investigate's throat. Um leans him against the wall, and they continue down the central chamber, not dealing with the other one. I- am I remembering that? Correctly, that they didn't no, so actually deal with the first
1: one. They no, they did not. So here's, basically, they distract the one. That one wanders off. Vax comes in, uh, uh, kills the kills the the, one that the was other staying. one. They sneak in and they go after uh, the what's inside the elephant yeah. quicker than the other guard can get back. That's it. That's it. Right.
2: Because um, because the other was, guard is doing the TK four two one, why aren't you at your post during this? Whole exactly, thing. right. <laughs> and I
1: love this particular sequence because part of this is because of the 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 reaction from the players, but also Matt did a really good job of amping up the tension in this scene. Yeah. Um. It's as they sneak in and how how he sort of describes it. And the, the, they come around behind the one, and they've got a really good plan here as well. I mean, it's 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 in some ways kind of a goofy plan, but it works out really, really well and is a nice scene, not only in terms of really building up the tension before chaos breaks out and the battle happens, mm-hmm. but it also does something that we haven't... We've seen a little bit from from... <clears throat> These characters before, but it does a really good job of establishing Vax's skill set as a, as a, as a sneak and assassin in a way that we haven't seen from him before. Yeah. Um. And Scanlan's ability, we've seen him. We saw him sneak into the war camp in the previous episode. Yes, he did. Yes, the previous episode. I, I would. I have problems remembering whether it was two episodes back or one. but mm-hmm.
2: Well, yeah. he's he Scanlan's done... This is the third time, I think, Scanlan's done Invisible Sneaking, because he did it in the Grayspine Manor in the very first episode. Um, yes, yes, he and, did. You're right. right. And then he did it through the camp when they first saw the illithid eat the dwarf prisoner's brain, mm-hmm. and then this is his third time, I believe.
1: Yes, yes, you are correct on that. Um, but it does a good job of... Of laying out their skill sets in a sort of very specialized way mm-hmm. that distinguishes them nicely.
0: Okay, so I completely lost where I was again.
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: <laughs> okay. Oh no, there it is. They um, just threw a bucket of Vax shit Cameron, at a mind flayer. Yes. Well, well, I was a little bit before that. Oh, okay. Um, Vax and can continue into the central chamber. Inside the chamber is an lit an elithid. Uh, uh, the Durgar general, and two other Durgar. Vax and Scanlan hear footsteps behind them, which is the other guard coming back. They sneak into the room unnoticed. Vax positions himself behind the Illithid, and Scanlan throws the shit on the Illithid. The shit hits the, hits the Mind flare. Yes. Um, as Scanlan throws, his invisibility fades, and the Illithid catches a glimpse of him before being blinded. The party hears Cloroda in their minds now. Vax makes his attack on the Illithid. Keyleth casts Daylight on Grok's pot, and Pike casts it off, off and casts it on her shield. Um, the light is so bright and that the others on the roof have to avert their gaze. The lithic manages to pull Vax's dagger from the back of its neck, eyes burning with rage and turns to him. The Dargar in the room are now on alert, reaching for and pulling out their weapons. Vax makes another attack, attack and the Alithid crumples to the ground. Um, the general runs across the table to the center of the room and swings at Vax with his flaming warhammer. Pfft, Grog slams his war axe into the roof, splitting it open. Grog slides down to the room below Pike jumping onto his foot and falls to the side. Uh, Vex and Percy jump down and they both take a shot at the general so Now, now pretty much the entire party is in that small room,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which is brightly lit uh, thanks to uh, Grog's like shield helmet. and
2: Grog's helmet. Yep.
0: <laughs> I think the only person that's not in there yet is Keyleth. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. um, the Durgar are in the room and are more into the room, cringing at the light coming from Grog's helmet. Uh, they tried over at their eyes, but it's still physically hurting him, and they all have disadvantage attacking. Grog quips, it's because he's so bright. <laughs> <laughs> Says a um, man with
2: an intelligence of six. Yeah, yes. I
0: mean, it's the pun is there. The, yeah. Intelligence of six is really all you,
2: puns are all you get. Really. Puns are about as good as it gets. Yeah, no, you're um, absolutely right there.
0: The Dargar attack Vax, Grog, Vex, and Scanlan. Tiberius casts Obelisk of Stone under the three Dargar attacking Vex, and Grog crushing them. Again, interesting uses of spells. Mm-hmm. Which I think I think I think the you know using spells in in not in ways they're not meant to be used I find personally very fun and rewarding and I'm glad that as a GM that's something that Matt showcases allowing yeah um, I mean it pisses off people who it pisses off rules lawyers but um narratively but, it's it's something that makes sense you know if you yes. summon a pillar underneath somebody and there's a roof before that pillar ends they're going to slam into the roof yeah, um
2: that- and yeah no it's 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 i'm i'm always happy to see storytellers who work with the laws of physics yep. rather than against them fall and damage
0: applies in more than one direction is all
1: i'm yeah, saying it
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it's important
1: it's important from a narrative perspective because let's be honest there's only so many times you can describe or portray somebody casting a fireball or somebody doing magic missiles or burning hands mm-hmm. um before it starts to get boring yeah. there there is an important need when when you're telling a story to provide that sort of wow factor and keep your audience interested particularly in the fights where where combat can very easily I know for me personally um with with literary fiction Combat can easily be where I turn out or uh to start to tune out because yeah. either it's poorly described or it's too mechanical. Yeah. Um, same thing, it, it, actually, same thing really applies towards uh, uh live action storytelling or, or animated depictions, in that if you are not portraying your action. In a coherent way, Michael Bay. Or a um or in an interesting way. Explosion. Then, yeah, explosion. Sorry, I was just, I was just Michael Baying you. <laughs> explosion. Low angle shots for everything. Um, that kind of stuff only is only interesting the first time. You start to you really start to lose your audience if you keep doing that. And if you can come up with new ways to use these spells that obviously work within the world, then it's a way to keep your audience invested even in, particularly since they're doing a D&D game, a dice rolling experience.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: Um, so, after that, Scanlan dom- uh, dominates the general and makes him make the rest of them stand down. Uh, mm-hmm. so they finish the fight. Uh, Keyleth uses grasping vine to bind the journal's hands again, not the way the spell works, but it's, a you know, it's, it's logical that that could be a thing that happens. Yep. Um,
2: and, and the ground begins to rumble. And props to the, the players for keeping the story on track, because this yep. started out as a an incisive assault with the specific intent of capturing a general for interrogation. Many groups of people I know would have just murdered everything in the room. And then <laughs> afterwards been like, Oh wait, wasn't there some guy we were supposed to capture? You know, now if we were looking at this from a story perspective, obviously, you know, cause it, cause it, it is a little odd to be, and I'll admit this anytime on this podcast, it's a little odd to be analyzing a D&D campaign from Correct. a narrative st- structure because usually when you uh, analyze a narrative, there's either a writer or a team of writers who are all trying to write the same story rather than there being sort of this tension between the various authors, as it were, of the plot. Um, Competitive storytelling. Right. This yes. is a much more competitive storytelling, right? Even 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 for for GMs who are literally just trying to make the players the heroes as much as they possibly can, which is what Matt does and which is why I think this works out so well. Um, you know, there will be those moments when from a from a narrative perspective, it would be yeah, that wasn't what I was going for. Yep. Mm-hmm. But in this but in this case It was a great melding of everybody around the table, both on Matt's side and on the player's side, of actually focusing on the objective and getting the job done. Yep.
0: And then the ground begins to shake. Yes. Um, Which is, again, that, hey, we're succeeded. Oh, fuck. Um, wait,
2: there's more.
0: The rumbling gets louder, and the Dorgar Dur- look around nervously. The stone floor below splits open near Percy, though he manages to dodge out of the way, and a large, armored, four-legged creature comes burrowing out of the ground and takes a bite out of him. Uh, a boulette, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, Pike casts a guiding bolt on it, blasting it inside of its face. Clearwater tries to attack but fails. Vax uh, turns on his boost of hates and tries stabbing at the thing's underbelly. Um, the general breaks out of Scanlan's influence rips out of the grasping vines, which were never meant to hold him in the first place <laughs> and picks up his warhammer. So that, that's another thing where it's like, yeah, I'll allow you to do that, but against concerted effort, it can't hold up because it's not trying right. to do that. Hmm. So psh, breaks out of it, grabs a warhammer. Um, Grog goes to town on the, on the bullet. Um, Vex also goes to town, on the bullet. Percy pulls his gun out, fires into its mouth. Um, and Actually, he sort doesn't. Of
2: I, I was gonna say, I don't think he does pull his gun out. No, no, no. I think he had his gun out. He, he had, had his thing, gun out, and, and the thing clamped down and, on his gun yes. arm, and he's just like, "Okay, well, my gun is already in its mouth. I might as well just pull the trigger and see yep. what yeah. happens." He
0: fired, and we had a great anime moment. Yes, yes, of the 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 bullet go going off, and then smoke billowing out its mouth and nostrils, and it not dying. Yep. yep. <laughs> So, sir, was a such a fun it sort little... of serves as a. It also serves as a visual reminder of how tough creatures can be. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, no, it's a great dramatic moment there. I think, um, and Matt really does a, an excellent descriptive job for let's let's be honest, a a crowning moment of badass for an individual character, you know. And it, I think it it's one of the earliest iconic Percy moments.
1: Yeah, it is, and it's a great. It was a great moment of interactive storytelling too, because that particular moment, um, uh, uh, Taliesin says, "Is my gun still in its? Or is my hand still in its mouth?" And I, I can't remember exactly what Matt says, but per, uh, Taliesin basically says, "Because I want my gun, my hand, keep saying gun, <laughs> right. my hand <laughs> to be in its mouth." Yeah, he's like, <laughs> "You can be grappled if you still want to have." <laughs> <laughs> and that allowed like you said for one of the great early iconic moments for, mm-hmm. for Percy. Yeah.
2: Yep. Uh, hey, remember that time that the bullet had me up to the elbow and yep, I just yep. squeezed the trigger. <laughs> yep. And I really like
0: the, the Oh, I'm sorry, one more.
1: Oh, I was gonna say I really like the this fight because it works in a narrative level of they had this great plan for what they thought was going to be the really big, tough fight against the, the, the Mind flare, the Duergaard General, and everybody. And they pretty much tore through them. Yeah. And there's there's almost <clears throat> a moment. like I, I don't think they actually say this in the episode, but there's almost this moment where they're like, well, that was easy. Rumble, 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 rumble. Yeah. And then and it was mm-hmm. the big climactic battle for that, for, for the this episode happens. It's a nice fake out. Right.
2: And, and it was a great payoff as well, because this is, we are at least one or two episodes in of having had these, these rumbles coming through the cavern, you know, something has been there. Um, You know, it's, it's the, the underdark version of the ripples in the water when you're, you know, canoeing down the Amazon. Um, Something has been underneath the surface and now we finally get to see oh it's a freaking huge monster that's trying to eat us all um and it, i th- i found it a very satisfying payoff to the the hints that he'd been dropping from that sort of ominous circling threat that would occasionally surface and then fade away and then surface again and then fade away and then finally boom here it is
1: yep okay
0: so um, the Durgar grab their weapons and attack Scanlan and Vex. Tiberius uh, uses a combination of telekinesis and firebolt to peel off some of the armor on the bullet and fire. Um, Scanlan runs towards the general uh, and gives him a hug and banishes him to another dimension, <laughs> which I think is a great way to use banish. You only have to touch him, but let's make it a hug. Yep. Um, and then to follow that, he gives him, he gives a bardic inspiration to Pike. Kilath turns into a rhino and gores the bu- the bullet. Uh, it jumps over Keeleth, carrying Percy with it, and lands between Chloroda and Scanlan, crushing them. Uh, drops Percy attack- to attack Scanlan, uh, as Scanlan is no longer conscious. As the bu- as the bullet basically whips him around like a ragdoll. Mm-hmm. Pike runs and heals Scanlan. Uh, Chloroda lightning bolts the bullet. Vax runs up and carves into it with his daggers. Uh, the Durgar general uh, returns right in front of the bullet, uh, but swings his hammer at Percy, knocking him out as well. Grog flanks the bullet and attacks. His attack catches it in the mouth and uh, reaches in and rips out its tongue. With his teeth. With his teeth, and then punches yep. it into the brain to kill it. Yep. And Pike heals Percy. Yes. And that's the end of the fight. With uh, everybody, everybody still up. The I mean, everybody... Still alive, um, the general alive and still posing a threat, but the bullet dead. And after that, they had uh, for those of you that are going back to what the you know, going to, back to watching this along with our 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 narrative, um, our dissection, I should say, uh, they had a Q&A afterwards, yes. And so that was episode three, uh, Attack on the Dirt Our War Camp. So I had less to uh, sorry episode four. Thank you. Yes. Um. Sorry. I had I had less narratively, I had less narrative problems with this one than I did the last one. But it was mostly fighting, so mm-hmm. there was there was less. While there's still narrative in the fighting, and they're very good about keeping that narrative going during the fights, mm-hmm. there was still less narrative overall to to really yep. deal with. Um, what about you guys? What do you
1: think? I was not. <coughs> Excuse me. I I was a big fan of last of episode 3. This one was a little bit of a letdown at least from a narrative perspective. There were a couple of moments in the episode. I wouldn't say letdown. It was it was definitely it was less intriguing. I still very much enjoyed the episode because the fights were great. The the, the bucket of shit thing was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um it was but it, it was a, just less less of a draw from a storyline <laughs> perspective because There are a lot of moments, and this isn't necessarily a criticism of of the show. This is a criticism of the way we are examining the show as a storytelling aspect. There are a lot of, there's a lot of planning done in this episode. And planning generally brings the storyline to a halt with a little bit of exception. It still allows for some character development, but there's a whole like 15 minute, maybe longer sequence where they talk about going down and investigating the water and, and all that, that leads nowhere. And if you were telling this in a, a, a TV show or, or a film or or book or, or comic book or the like, that's a sequence that would get cut out in editing because yeah. it goes absolutely nowhere.
2: And yeah, it's, it's, a it's dead basically, end line.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fine because uh, with this show, it's not exactly any of those. So the players are going to do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it still is a little bit less of a draw from the aspect that we're, we're approaching the show for for this. Uh, yeah. And, for some-
2: and, you know, like and like I was saying, you know, with we were joking about, you know, getting people across a pit is yeah. you know it takes a huge amount of time from a storytelling perspective there you would probably wrap that up in about a paragraph you know mm-hmm. um whereas here because resources and spell slots and that sort of thing are an, a necessary um, aspect of how the game is balanced and, and works on a mechanical level, a DM has to, has to say, okay, step by step, tell me how you're getting over this geospatial obstacle that I put in your place. Um, you know, because especially when, you know, there's going to be a fight immediately following, um, no, yeah you know so so that makes sense from a game perspective but from a narrative perspective that giving a lot of time and detail to that sort of thing just just wouldn't make sense from from a writer's standpoint um the other thing that i was looking at as far as this episode goes was you know yeah i think you're absolutely right jeremy there were there were moments in this episode that were fantastic but it unlike previously it it didn't feel like it was nonstop you know uh scanlan and vax sneaking in flinging a bucket of shit at a mind flayer was great percy getting his arm caught uh and shooting inside the the enemy at point blank range was was fantastic you Mm -hmm. know things things like that but those were mostly just moments that happened you know those were those were these these peaks in otherwise a fairly low energy low stakes uh, with the exception of that tension building that Matt does so very well.
1: Well, and some of the some of the earlier stuff stuff with Pike coming in mm-hmm. and the Kavarn stuff. That stuff was yeah, good. That stuff was that's good too. That's where the that's where the narrative stuff comes into play. It's just because it because it kicked off the episode and it very quickly turned into planning and combat. It, mm-hmm. it it's it's very understandably overshadowed.
2: Right. And as far as you were saying with planning and that sort of thing, you can make a planning sequence an interesting and entertaining uh from a narrative perspective. Yes. Um I especially like heist movies and and those sort of things usually do it very well, but they frequently use that technique where, you know, they're all gathered around the blueprint or whatever and as they're describing what you're going to do, the camera will cut to them actually doing it. so or it's this an inner, ideal version of them doing
0: it. Yeah. Right, or an
2: idealized <laughs> version of them doing it, you know, right. In the whole setup thing, you know, I think back to like Ocean's Eleven and, yep. and some of the other movies, no. you know. They did that fairly well. That's one way that you can add the action to the planning scene from a narrative perspective and make it so it's more than just, hi, we're all in a conference room talking about options, you know.
0: And in many ways, um, planning on the fly is very much similar to that, uh, yes. at least in the D and D case, because, you know, in D and D you have a lot more time to, to actually think than you do in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, planning in the middle of a battle is somewhat similar to that though. I do have to say, um, the best mo- series of movies to ever make use of, of talking about events as the uh, talk, showing events, as you're talking about them, uh, When it's not actually happening in real time, is the Boondock Saints. Oh, yeah. Uh, Does that the best. And if you haven't seen the Boondock Saints, go see it. It's worth it just for Willem Dafoe.
2: Oh, it's absolutely worth it for so many other reasons. But yes, many, many, many other
0: reasons. But if you only need one reason, oh, she gets your fucking
2: rope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, So, yeah. Uh yeah no. That's... Boondock
2: Saints is an is an excellent way of, yeah, narrating action while actions happening and cutting it back and forth between the event and the description of the event. Yeah, no, there's some And there's some it has
0: to be good gorgeous... because they do it
1: all the time. Yes. Yeah. But
2: there's but and they do it so much. There's there's this aspect of if you keep doing it sometimes that makes it better. And Boondock Saints is one of the best <laughs> I think you're right. One of the best examples of that.
0: Oh yeah. So that was episode four. Uh, we have been uh, critical thinking and we have also been final show films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out our website at final show You can also check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash FS films. Uh, you can support us at either location. If you want to do a monthly payment, you can do a uh, monthly donation. You can do so on the Patreon page. And thank you to our twenty five dollars supporters, Chris Comfort and Antitonic. You can also do so. You can also do a one-time donation on our website. We are PayPal donate now button. And we appreciate all of our donors, and we appreciate all of you listening. And we also appreciate 411mania.com. Jeremy, give us a spiel.
1: 411mania.com. We are a pop culture uh, website covering news, opinions from movies, television, music, uh, video games, MMA, professional wrestling, and now Dungeons & Dragons actual plays, and all sorts of other role-playing game stuff, thanks to Final Show Films.
0: Yep. Check uh, us we, out. Appreciate, we appreciate them for letting us put our crap up there and we appreciate you for listening. <laughs> uh, so, that being said, thank you all very much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody.
2: Goodbye.
0: Right at, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>